I feel like I uh, arrive here uh, so many Sundays, uh, weak and uh, low, and just so regularly encouraged to sing with you and to have you sing the gospel to me. I'm very thankful for that. I don't know if you've watched the news recently. If you read the news, you could pick any news source. The news in the last 10 days has been Israel and Gaza. I don't know if you know what all is going on there or how this most recent conflict started. We don't have time for the history between Israel and the Palestinians this morning, but they have been at conflict for many many decades. Early in May, Israeli police in the city of Jerusalem blocked off the Damascus Gate, which was a popular gathering place for Arabs during Ramadan, which sparked protest by Arabs. And then there was an attempt by Jewish settlers to evict longtime Arab residents, leading to violent clashes with Israeli police. Arab youth then attacked ultra-Orthodox Jews in the city. And this culminated in a violent Israeli police raid on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, Jerusalem's holiest site for Muslims, which is located on the Temple Mount, the place where the Jewish temple used to stand in Israel. Next, Hamas-backed Palestinians fired rockets into Israel. From there, it has escalated back and forth, back and forth for days in an increasingly deadly conflict with 33 more dead in Gaza this morning. After reading this passage this week that we're going to be discussing in Revelation chapter 3, it had me wondering, are there any Christians over there? Are there any Christians in Israel? Are there any Christians in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank. Israel has a population of about 9 million people, and it's estimated that there are only about 0.69 evangelical Christians, which makes that potentially around 60,000 Christians in all Israel. Can you imagine what it's like to be a Christian in Israel these days? How small you feel in all this conflict wonder what it felt like this morning as churches might have sought to gather or pray with rockets flying overhead toward your city or your neighbors. What about in the Gaza Strip? About five million people in the Gaza Strip, most of them who are Muslim. Christianity Today reported in 2014 there were about 1,300 Christians in the Gaza Strip, and it was steadily declining then. In 2007, there was only one evangelical church in Gaza, Gaza Baptist Church. I can't tell if it's still there or not. In October 2007, one of their church's leaders, Rami Ayad, who also managed the only Palestinian Christian bookstore, was kidnapped, publicly beaten, and murdered. And as you might have guessed, the official growth rate of Christians in the West Bank 
is an annual rate of 0.0%. Christians, have you ever felt this way? Like the circle of true, Jesus-loving Christians is increasingly a very, very small group of people. Like the walls are closing in on us a bit. Of all the people in Jerusalem and in Gaza right now, the last people who are making the news are Christians. People who recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. An innocent man born of a virgin who was crucified and risen again for the sins of the world. Christians are people who trust that Jesus is the king of both earth and heaven. What about them in Gaza? What about them in Jerusalem? What will come of them? What will come of us who are trusting in Christ, even if we are but of a little strength? Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would be powerful here for us today. That as we hear your word preached, we would recognize it for what it is, the word of God, not the word of man, which is at work in those who believe. We pray that we would see it at work today. Convict us in all the ways that we need to be convicted and repent. Father, encourage us in all the ways that we need encouragement. You know. You know. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this passage has certainly affected me this week. I did not plan to be crying by now. It could be a long morning. Philadelphia was a faithful little church. We're going through the book of Revelation. We've come to the point in Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus is addressing seven churches one by one, like a gardener goes from flower to flower in his garden, tending his flowers. And Jesus is tending all of the churches, the lampstands, which are like trees, like flowers in the garden of God, in the temple of God. And he's going, caring for each church one by one. And he comes today to this church in Philadelphia. Look what he says about the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8. Look in the middle of the verse here. This is what the main thing Jesus says and notices about the church in Philadelphia First, I know that you have but little power. What does that mean? It means all kinds of things for the church there. They don't have much sway with the government. They're not very influential in society. Maybe they don't have much money. They don't have very many people. They barely make their budget every year. Maybe they haven't grown too much over the years. Maybe they've even lost more people than they've gained. You don't have enough power to get much done as a church. Yet, look at verse 3, chapter 3, verse 8. I know that you have but little power, 
and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Small in power. Small in power, little power, but faithful to Jesus' name. A little faithful church in Philadelphia. I want to take just a minute and clarify that what we mean, what Jesus means by this is not that we celebrate little things, small things, that a small church is somehow more pure or better than a, a different kind of church, a bigger church. One of the things I hear so often over the years here at Millwood from first-timers from time to time, and I heard it again uh, this morning, is we're looking for a, a smaller church, and I always have mixed feelings about this. One of them is, you found the place. Like, we're, like we're it. We, we know each other. We do discipleship together. We feed each other food. We care for each other. We're, we're, we're that. But sometimes we have to be careful. If we're, some Christians need to be careful that we're not looking at smaller as kind of pure and better, as kind of a, a badge that we can wear. Smallness is not a, not a badge of honor. That's something that can often get revolutionaries stirring other people into a frenzy. See how we're the minority, we're, we're smaller. Let's get together and fight the man together. Join our little group. But that's not what's happening here. That's not how Jesus means this. What Jesus honors in Philadelphia is not that you are small as opposed to the great organizations in the world, but that though you are small, though you have reason to give in, though you have reason to doubt and be unfaithful, though you are small, you have kept God's word and not denied Jesus' name. The smaller you are, it seems, the more you might have opportunity and reason and temptation to deny Jesus' name, feeling like you are small, you are forgotten, you are powerless in the world compared to Israel and Gaza and wherever you may be, even America. Even though we should not champion smallness as a badge, we do see in Scripture over and over that God prefers to work through the weak and that which is small for His own glory. God prefers to work through that which is little and small and weak. And there are many times in Israel's history, for example, when God took a large Israeli military and had them pared down. Because if that military goes in, people are going to say, that military won the battle. And I want it to be known that I won the battle. The author of Hebrews has already told the church that they are Lacking one thing, they're a church that's struggling, they're a church that wants to leave Jesus' name and go back into Judaism. They're caring for each other in prison, they've endured loss of their property, loss of their comfort, but they lack endurance. They need to keep going, keep being faithful to Jesus' name. And in order to help the church be strengthened, the author of Hebrews takes them through what we call the hall of faith. Those who continue to have faith and endure, though they did not receive what was promised. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 to 34, 
The author kind of wraps up his argument like this, and he says, what more shall we say after talking about Abraham and Sarah and such? And Moses, what more shall I say? For the time would not would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who though through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You need to know, struggling little church that's tempted to fall away from Jesus, that God is regularly making strong out of weakness. This makes me think about 2 Samuel chapter 22, the chapter which recounts some of the great feats of David's mighty men. Once David was anointed king, he started sweeping through the enemies of Israel in the promised land like a hot knife through butter. Nothing could stop him. This was in part due to what we call David's mighty men. These are the guys who would fight one Israelite, one mighty man of David versus hundreds of Philistines. And they would fight all day and all night. These chapters... In chapter 22, for example, 2 Samuel 22 are the reasons that comic book versions of the Bible are even possible. It's that kind of action. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8 through 10, recalling multiple scenes of David's mighty men. This is just one early on. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Basebeth, a Tekmenonite. He was a chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo. Uh, difficult to say that, make it sound heroic. Son of Ahoi. He was with David when they def- defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. But he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. The word there means it was like Eliezer's hand was stuck to his sword. He fought so hard he couldn't even let go of his own sword. Now we might be thinking, yeah, we need to be like those guys. We should all look like camp gladiators spiritually, maybe physically too. But there was nothing that special about David's mighty men. In fact, my theory is that they are the poor, impoverished, bitter people from 1 Samuel chapter 22 who gathered with David at the cave of Adullam. That's just a theory. It was their God who was all-powerful. Keep reading in 2 Samuel chapter 22, the very next verse says, And the Lord brought about a great victory that day when his sword was in his hand. The men returned after him to strip the slain. And so when David was delivered from his enemies, he sang in Psalm chapter 18, which begins in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. You are my strength. 
You are our strength. I in myself, I'm a little boy from among the shepherd bringing some cheese to my brothers. Who am I? But you, O oh Lord, are my strength. And so often, like when David was a little boy going to face Goliath, what seems very strong is actually very weak. And what seems very weak is actually filled with great power. This is how God shows his power in his people. By working and sustaining and showing himself through that which is weak. When you look at the church in Philadelphia, you don't see much power. Not a lot of people. Not invited to the local governor's banquet as a popular church. Not being interviewed on television. None of their pastors are writing books. The Christians there aren't very spectacular. Yet, they don't deny Jesus' name. Whatever will come, will come. But the church does not deny Jesus' name. They keep his words. Jesus looks upon this with favor, with blessing. I know that you are but of little power, yet you don't deny my name. That's right where I want you to be. I wonder if someone here today sometimes doesn't hold your own church in disdain because it is not stronger than you wish it were. Or maybe you covet the church down the street because it looks way more alive than the church you've experienced. Be very careful with those ideas of what is alive and what is dead. Maybe you are discouraged, Christian, thinking that COVID has worn down our church. COVID has worn down the American church. Perhaps it's God's grace to keep us from living in the strength of our own reputation and to help us be humble. There's a church not far from us in Texas that boasts 45,000 members. And when I say not far, I mean that's Texas not far. They live there like three hours away. When their, ga- when their members gather as a church, their church is larger than most cities in the world. They have a huge multi-day Christmas production, 100-person choirs, schools, businesses, coffee shops, a gym, and on and on. Does that mean that they're alive? Does it mean that they're really doing something that little churches aren't doing? Because look how many people there are. Look, look how beautiful. Look at the pictures on the website. Man, it looks so good. Consider that it is the churches in Revelation 2 to 3 which seem to be doing the best, which are actually in the most danger. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works, you have reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You look alive, but Jesus knows that you are dead. To Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Better to have no reputation but truly be alive than to have a great reputation and be dead. Better to be poor on the earth and rich in God than poor in God and rich in the things of the world. And church, let me encourage you, don't waste your time. Don't waste your energy. Don't waste your soul longing, wishing, and even praying and asking that your church would be like the church down the street or the church on the billboard or some worldly idea of strength in a church. Check yourself. Check ourselves. Are we wishing that everything functions in our church like we're at an Apple store? And there's a huge staff who do everything and schedule everything for us like when we were at Disney. Do you find yourself looking down on your church because it's small, because it's weak in any way? Be careful that you do not find yourself wanting a church to look alive to have the music, to have the preacher, to have their people do, et cetera, et cetera. Be careful because if you have a church which is walking in faithfulness and not denying Jesus' name, they're not perfect, they're little, they're weak, they're making disciples, not denying Jesus' name, but that's not enough for you in a local church. And you want a church that looks different and feels different and has a reputation. Let me say that you may be very likely on the way to denying Jesus' name. You're very likely to scatter like Jesus' disciples when he was crucified in Matthew 26. Because it's not the name of Jesus that you treasure, if that's your heart, but a name for yourself. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for your sins that is lighting your chest on fire. It is the acceptance and the approval of mankind that you burn for. And that will lead you to deny Jesus' name when the moments of testing come. You may boast that you will never deny Jesus like Peter did who said to Jesus, I will never deny you. I'll never let anything happen to you. And yet all it took was a little servant girl coming to ask him if he knew who Jesus was, to which Peter said, I don't know what you mean, and I don't know the man. It will likely be that you would refuse to do the same thing if your idea of church is less or more than simply not denying the name of Jesus Christ no matter how little or small, that little band of believers may be. Church, what are we trying to do here at Millwood Baptist Church? We're not trying to achieve the reputation of the church down the street. We're trying to help each other keep the word of Christ. We're trying to help each other become like Christ. We're trying to help the world confess with us that Jesus is the Son of God crucified for our sins. We're not trying to reshape Hollywood. We're not trying to gain back America. We're trying to be a faithful church, a faithful ambassador, a faithful outpost of the kingdom of God. We were in Waco this week at the silos with some of our family for my son's birthday. I saw a couple taking pictures. By the way, this is the Christian celebrity couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines' place we're at. 
Kimple taking pictures in front of the silos, and I noticed it was a look, looked like to me a husband and a wife. The wife was taking a picture. The husband was over there. I walked over. I offered if I could take a picture with both of them together. She was happy to have that, and so I took the pictures, gave them the camera back, and just said, hey, are you guys from around here? Where are you from? They said, we're from Memphis. And they said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Austin, Texas. Uh, we're just up here for, for lunch and for the day for my son's birthday. And she goes, oh, that is so great. My son is the pastor at that big church down there. And I said, that's very, it's interesting. I'm a pastor in Austin as well. And she said, well, what's the name of your church? I said, it's Millwood Baptist Church. It's in northwest Austin. And she looked at me like I may well have told her that we had a church on the moon, right? She never heard of Millwood Baptist Church. She doesn't know Millwood Baptist Church. It took me one or two questions to find out what the big church in Austin, actually Georgetown, was. Can you, can you believe that? Are you a little offended, Millwood? No one's ever even heard of us in Memphis. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay with me. It's okay with me if no one ever hears of us. If we are but small, as long as we are not denying the Lord Jesus Christ, we are making disciples, we're caring for one another in love, remaining faithful to sound doctrine, helping each other follow Jesus Christ to become more like him, more of our joy for more of his glory. That's really it. The church can do two things with not having much of a reputation. We can believe that something is wrong and do whatever we have, any worldly means, to go get a new reputation. Or we can simply trust the affirmation of Jesus that though we might be little in power, we don't deny his name. No matter how close the walls close in, no matter how unpopular we become in the world, no matter how, many, how powerless we might seem to ourselves or anyone else, Church, what do we, what do, we do? What, what, is, what does the church do? What does any church do? What does Philadelphia do? What do you do in this scenario? How do you keep going? What, what's your purpose? A thousand little obediences in the same direction to make a big difference. A thousand little obediences in the same direction to make a big difference. I got a message from a friend, a pastor friend of mine this week. He had found notes that he'd forgotten that he had, and he just started sending me pictures of these typed out notes on Ephesians and Jude, I think it was. He simply said, I found these notes that I didn't know that I had. The man that wrote them discipled me when I was a child. At the time, he was 66 years older than me. He had an eighth grade education. There are certainly things that I wish I could talk with him about today. He passed away many years ago. For a man that had an eighth grade education, the Lord did many wonderful things through him. He held as many as four one hour long Bible studies in his home for as long as I knew him. The man's name was Otis. My friend said he was not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination, which is ironic because Otis means wealthy. All that happened, all that discipleship, those years of Bible study, my, my friend now serving as a pastor at a church probably twice as large as ours, preaching, teaching, caring every Sunday, and he looks back to an, 
a man 66 years older than him who was walking with him when he was four years old at church. And he still has the notes. Christians, we're not trying to build Millwood into an evangelical empire. We're trying to help bring people to Christ and help Christians keep the word of Christ, never deny his name. And we do this through a thousand little, never noticeable, never heralded, never awarded obediences. Teach children the Bible at your local church. When the children's minister stands up here and says, we need more volunteers to help pass on the Bible to our children on Sunday mornings, there ought to be a line out the door to sign up. Women, men of every age, Show up to your life group every week, even when you're tired. Read, pray, share, encourage each other to keep the word, not deny the name of Christ. Show up for your church family meetings, your business meetings. Be about the life and the ministry and the faithfulness and the strength of your church. Grab someone who's not in discipleship. We don't need a, a huge program here at this church or at any church. These little things will never go away. Hey, I am not reading the Bible and praying with anyone. Can you and I do that on a regular basis? Just get together and read and pray and talk about the opportunities that I have for Jesus' name. Can we do that? A thousand little obediences that may never make the billboard, may never be reported at the Southern Baptist Convention, but will make a big difference in someone's life, in someone's family, in this church history. What if you just read the Bible with one person a year in your local church? That's so small. Isn't that small? Just, just one person. Every year I'm going to find one person to read the Bible with. And I'm going to help them, and they're going to help me. And let's say you lived for 50 more years. I know some of you don't have 50 more years. When you die, you will have read the Bible and prayed with 50 people. 50. Maybe you've got five. Maybe you've got 15. Maybe a few people will show up at your funeral, and they'll have a conversation. How did you know him? He asked me to read the Bible and pray with him. Really, me too. That's why I'm here. Simple faithfulness in discipleship. H.B. Charles posted a good summary of it this week. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. Just be committed to Jesus. Be committed to Jesus and to keeping his word. You don't have to be something big, small in power, but faithful will do. We can all be, we're, in fact, we're all a little bit like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, John and Peter are brought before the chief priest. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, it says, Acts 4, 13, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. 
Did you catch that? These dumb fishermen are showing up with the nerve to speak to us and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They hadn't even been to school. Eighth grade education. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, says the same thing, but more pointedly to us, church. When I came to you, brothers, Paul says to the church, I did not come. He says, for consider your calling, church. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You guys weren't real smart when we showed up. Did you catch it? You're just some normal old people who heard the gospel. Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come. 1 Corinthians 2, continuing that same train of thought. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. No one else would understand this. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We don't need flashy. We don't need creative. We don't need bigger. We don't need more A few uneducated people with the Spirit of God in our chest and the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sin and raised from the dead on our lips will do. Jesus said to the church, I know that you have but little power, but you keep my word and you don't deny my name. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to that. Stay in that. Stay in that purpose. Stay in that direction. Hold fast to that. And here's Jesus' promise to the little faithful church. Four things. To the little faithful church at Philadelphia. To that church, Jesus tells us which one of the four quarters is going to win out in the end in the old city of Jerusalem. I don't proclaim to be very familiar with Israel geography, geology, city structure, but in the old city of Jerusalem, there are four quarters, four areas where people live. And you heard this come up in the struggle that's going on right now between Israel and Gaza, people trying to evict people from certain quarters. You have the Muslim quarter, where the Alexa Mosque is, you have the Christian quarter, you have the Armenian quarter, and you have the Jewish quarter. And they all have their own space. These all kind of unidentified, and yet everybody knows areas. And the tension between those quarters and between those religions and those worldviews and who owns what is what has poured out into the struggle that exists now in Jerusalem. Who's going to win this struggle and how? Now, if you've ever ever been to church, if you're a Christian, you're probably thinking, Christians, 
Christians, right? That's, that, that's Jesus and Christians. That's the answer. But I want to show you that Jesus shows the church in Philadelphia doesn't exactly look like you think. It certainly doesn't look like the picture of rockets going overhead like we've seen. Here's what Jesus promises to the little faithful church in Philadelphia. Number one, the kingdom door is open to you. The door to the kingdom is open. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This seems to be talking about entrance into the kingdom of heaven. What's gotten Gaza and Israel in trouble? You can't come here. You can't go over here. This is not your place of worship. This is not your holy land. You are not a true religion. You serve a false god. You cannot come in. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, you may be small in power. There may not be a single door on earth open to you, but the door to the kingdom of heaven is open. The door to heaven itself is open to you. This is speaking about salvation. No one can close the door of salvation to you. I alone open it. I alone close it. And if you are walking with me, with Christ Jesus, trusting him forgiveness of your sins as the risen Lord over all the earth, no one can shut the door to you. No one. Second thing, Jesus will vindicate you by his love. Jesus will vindicate you by his love. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, to the little church in Philadelphia, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, speaking of Jews actually, the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Likely what's happening in the Jewish synagogue here in this city is Jewish leaders are not letting Christians into the synagogue. They're not letting them in to worship Yahweh. And Jesus refers to that synagogue as a synagogue of Satan because they are so opposed to Christ, it's satanic. And all those who claimed God by birthright, all those who claimed God by heritage, I grew up in the church, I grew up as a Jew, I grew up, I followed the laws. They will come to know that the door has been shut to them and that Jesus loves you, those who are in Christ. Their bowing down doesn't mean that they're going to come worship you. Their bowing down insinuates their humility, having realized that all along, all along, you, that little, small, faithful church, Gaza Baptist Church, with but little power, but would not deny Jesus' name, was actually the true, treasured, beloved people of God. What a reversal is coming. His love for you, as you keep his name, will be vindicated. Thirdly, you'll be kept from trial. You'll be kept from trial, and I want to rephrase that to say you'll be kept in trial. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. There's a play on words here. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the world to try those who dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers as opposed to heaven dwellers. Earth dwellers being a, a phrase we're going to see through the book of Revelation that speaks to unbelievers. Those whose dwelling really is limited to the earth as opposed to those Christians whose dwelling really will end up in heaven. But this idea that you have 
kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial doesn't necessarily mean that churches should expect that if you believe in Jesus, you're not going to be experiencing any persecution. You're not going to be experiencing any trial. We've seen the exact opposite in previous letters to the churches. Jesus told us in many places, you want to come follow me? Get your cross. Let's go die together. Luke chapter 9. What Jesus is saying here is the same phrase that he uses in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. When he's praying to God about the disciples, he says, God, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the world. Keep them while they're in the world. You keep them. Don't take them out of the world. Keep them while they're there from the evil one. This is the same language that he's using to the church in Philadelphia. You will be kept through trial. You keep his name. He will keep you. Lastly, you'll be claimed as Jesus's. You do not deny Jesus's name. He will claim you as his own when he comes again. He will claim you as his own. You might not have any name on earth, any reputation on earth, no big church title. You don't have a name when it comes to Rome or America or the world. They don't recognize you. They look down on you. But Jesus says the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Christ himself will be written on you. Like my dog has a phone number on his neck so that if you find him, it's me that you're going to call because that's my dog. Maybe that's not a good illustration, but just go with me. That's mine. He's mine. Like Andy written on the boot of a doll named Woody. Jesus says to those who do not deny his name, mine. That's mine. I write my name on that. In fact, he says it three times. Mine, mine, mine. Notice how Jesus makes sure this little church in Philadelphia knows they will be marked as Jesus's. When he comes to sift through the people in the world, goats over here, sheep over here, there's going to be a name on you so that Jesus knows, that God knows this is mine. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. To the one who conquers, this passage meaning the one who continues to enduringly and patiently not deny his name, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. The door will always be open. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You don't have to look too hard to see the repetition of words. You do not deny my name. God's name will be written on you. The city's name will be written on you. And my own new name will be written on you on you. That is the name of God himself. You will bear the name of God. You will be secured like when adoption papers are finally legally signed and there's no turning back. That's my son. Christians, when Jesus comes and he's coming soon, you will see God's face, Revelation 22, 4, and his name will be on your forehead. Do not deny his name. He will put his name on you. He will put on you the name of the city of my God, Jesus says. Verse 12, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. 
Listen, let the world fight over the world. Let the four quarters in Jerusalem fight over Jerusalem. Let them have it. No one's going to take the everlasting Jerusalem for themselves. The everlasting Jerusalem comes. It comes down from God out of heaven. Our city, God's city, is coming down out of heaven. Our city isn't even on earth yet. You can't even go to our city yet. This is the city which is the true Jerusalem, which is yet to come to earth. This city is the door open to you Christians. Says it like this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 to 27, speaking about the city to come. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. You hear that? Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The name of the new city, which comes from heaven, heaven itself to earth. And Jesus says, finally, my own new name. I'll write on you and give you my own new name, a name we don't even know yet. And then we don't even know what that name is. It says in Revelation chapter 19, 12, written on him is a name that no one knows but himself. That name will be given to you if you keep his name. The name of God, God's city, Christ's own name will be written on those who do not deny his name, who keep his word. Jesus will say to you on that day, mine mine they're, they're mine the world will shut you out of their synagogues some churches may even look upon you with disdain Jesus will open the door to you to the kingdom of God there's a section of Psalms from Psalm chapter 120 to I think 133 or 34 they're called the songs of ascent song of ascents Songs of David that were written, that it's believed were the songs typically sung by Jews when they gathered from around the world to the city of Jerusalem for three specific festivals a year. And the Song of Ascent were those songs that they would sing together on the way up as they camped at the campfire along the way, as the song came to them as they walked up the road. One of those is Psalm 124. A psalm looking forward to being in the city of God, looking forward to Jerusalem. Christians, it's fitting for us to think and pray and hope the same way. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, and then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. 
We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken. We have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Oh, how true and full is salvation in Christ and in the coming city of Jerusalem, the city of God, down from heaven. Keep his word. Don't deny his name. We are his, his, his. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise. We trust, we believe your word is active and living sharper than a double-edged sword. It is able to pierce as deep as dividing soul and spirit and bone and marrow makes known the motives of our hearts. Lord, I pray today that you would help our, our own motives and our own hearts be known today to us as they are to you. What do we love about this church? What is the true strength in any local church, Father? Jesus, what does it mean to have your favor but to not deny your name, no matter how small we are? Would you help us, Father, to walk in a thousand little obediences, passing on the word to the next generation, helping each other follow Jesus? Help us walk with this in mind today. They use the weak, use the small for very great, great things. We love you, Father. We pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.